Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to the province, and to Canada. Through our youth and young leaders programs, civic action diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. On behalf of the club and our event partner, the National Post, thank you for being with us and thank you for joining our conversation. Before I introduce our panelists, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events. On February 3rd, join Chairman of Franco Nevada, Pierre Lasson, and panelist Catherine Farrow from TMAC Resources, Bruce Simpson of McKinsey, and Randall Oliphant from New Gold for an in-depth discussion on the importance of mining to the Canadian economy. And on February 12th, we're proud to welcome to our podium Monique LaRue, Chair of the Board and President and CEO of Desjardins Group, to discuss the merits of the cooperative model in building sustainable prosperity in Canada. For a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, you can visit our website at canadianclub.org. And you can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDN C-L-U-B-T-O, or by using that hashtag. I'd like to welcome a group of youth and young leaders from the York School and Havergal College, sponsored today by Julie DiLorenzo. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Students, please stand. I'd also like to express our special thanks to today's sponsors, EY and Scotiabank. Thank you for your generous support. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'm pleased to introduce today's topic and the distinguished panel that will address it. For 38 seasons, the Canadian Club and National Post have kick-started each year with a forecast luncheon. Here, the panelists serve up a healthy discussion on the economy, the markets, and political issues in digestible portions of stats, trends, and opinions. Many of us are relieved to see the backside of 2014. With economic and political surprises around every corner, we hope you took the opportunity to rest and recuperate over the holidays. Oil and gas prices are down, like our loony. Gold has lost its shine. Governments near and far are focusing on debt reduction and austerity measures to keep ballooning budgets from exploding. Political change has swept the, our continent. 
This will certainly make for an interesting year locally, nationally, and for our southern neighbors as well. Is there any good news in sight? Let's hear from our distinguished panel of experts. This year's forecast discussion is being moderated by Bruce Celery, columnist for Money Sense magazine, author of Moolah Law, and a director of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And backed by popular demand is the always opinionated and highly knowledgeable panel of experts. Conrad Black, Terence Corcoran, Andrew Coyne, Diane Francis, and Warren Justin. Before I bring them to the stage, I'd like to encourage our live audience to take this opportunity to participate in the conversation by filling out the question cards available on your table. They look like this and our volunteers will come around to collect them. And now I'm pleased to turn the stage over to Bruce to kickstart our discussion. Bruce, over to you. Okay, all right, let's go. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jennifer. Right. Welcome, everybody. All right. Thank you very much to Jennifer Sloan, to the Canadian Club of Toronto, to the National Post, to Scotiabank, and to Ernst & Young for inviting us all here. I am really excited about this event because we had a real tone setter in the reception in the room back there. The photographer, by tradition, sets all of the members of the head table up for a photo. So he's trying to get the photo, he's lining us all up. You can imagine the egos in the room while he's trying to take this photo. And he says, without missing a beat, and this is true, you, would, you can ask any of the head tables, he says, Mr. Black, could you shift a little to the left? <laughs> Perfect! So that is likely what we are gonna see here at the 38th annual dinner. I mean, Mr. Black is so cooperative, right? He will absolutely adhere to that request. Show of hands, how many of you have been to this event before? Okay, great, lots and lots of you. How many of you feel that you are qualified to stand up here and deliver your forecast? No way, not in your life. I'm thrilled to be the moderator. I would never offer up my opinion of the future, so we must applaud the bravery of our speakers today who are gonna stand up here and offer up their predictions to 500 people live, thousands more on the web and on television to be judged. To be judged mostly 12 months from now, because hopefully if we're back here again in 12 months, we will revisit the predictions as I will do right now. A year ago, the prediction was that Stephen Harper is not going anywhere as leader of the PC party, so far true. Ontario will get a new premier, false. A fracture will develop on the energy front, true, but a bit of an understatement, I think, in terms of what actually happened. Uh, Obama will improve, will approve Keystone, so far false. The Canadian dollar will fall to 90 cents or lower, true. Olivia Chow will be the next mayor of Toronto. I mean, so, so totally not true, but what's bewildering is the drama that unfolded that we couldn't have possibly predicted sitting here 12 months ago. So, my job is very simple. It is to keep our speakers to five minutes, which for Conrad Black is basically two sentences. So I'm gonna be standing right there trying to keep our time. <clears throat> I have a five-year-old who has a difficult time managing transitions, and I don't think I am adequately prepared. She has done nothing to help me here. So, here's how things work. Each of our expert panelists is gonna come up here and provide their case and forecast for 2015. 
Following the final presentation, I'm gonna open up the floor to a Q&A session. So I'm gonna have cards, I'm gonna sit there. Uh, you can write on the top of your card who you believe is the perfect person to answer your question. And I will ask those uh, questions as we go. Uh, now, without further delay, it is my great pleasure to welcome up to the stage Mr. Terence Corcoran. Terence. Thank you, but I just have to go over to get my notes. Note that I did start the clock already. <laughs> so Terence will have four minutes and 45 I seconds. thought there was a rule that the introducer is not supposed to outshine the first. Oh. I know it's I'm a written, first timer. It's written in the no Canadian idea. Club okay. rules somewhere. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Bruce. That was uh, great. Best introductions we've ever had, I think. Uh, uh, not to take away from Amanda, who was very nice. But she told the same joke. You hear the, the Amanda joke about uh, economists? What is it? Now I've forgotten the joke. <laughs> oh well. Four minutes, uh, 13 uh, seconds. <laughs> oh shit. Anyways, I want to draw your attention to the annual contest that uh, Paul introduced earlier, specifically the uh, graph. If you pick, pick up your little cards and look at the graph that shows the history of the price of oil going back to the 1950s. Now don't fill it in just yet, because I'm going to spend the rest of my allotted five minutes <clears throat> talking about oil. Now last year, I was the one who speculated that Olivia Chow would win the mayor's job and that Tim Hudak would be the premier. This year, I'm going to stick with a safe subject, oil. First, though, are, are there any peak oil theorists, peak oilers in the audience? $200? $150? Jeff? Jeff Rubin? Is Jeff in the room? No. Uh, keeping your heads down, good idea. Peak oilers are to forecasting what the Edmonton oilers are to hockey. Now, at least Edmonton has a few wins this year. And there's always next year or the year after that when they get through the rebuilding process. Peak oilers have had no victories in 50 years of warning that the world is running out of oil. They keep rebuilding the theory, and that, but nothing seems to work. One of the more entertaining internet experiences these days is following some of the peak oil websites. They've got a lot of explaining to do and they're trying to. One well-known peak oil theorist, Arthur Berman, clarified the theory the other day. Peak oil, he said, does not mean that we're running out of oil. But if we're not running out of oil, what's the theory? What's peaking and where's it going? As recently as a couple of years ago, some peak oil theorists predicted that the world's supply of oil would decline, uh, it would start to decline in maybe 2014. Instead, world oil production has steadily risen since the first peak oil idea surfaced in the late 1950s and production is expected to continue to climb for decades to come. Now the fact that peak oil theorists keep getting it wrong doesn't mean that we should hold it against them. 
All the experts and high-powered forecasters, the giants of energy policy, failed to predict, forecast, or even hint at the biggest and most important economic development of 2014. The price of oil is more than just a surprise. This is what an official economic jargon, I think uh, Warren will agree, is an economic shock. Mostly it seems to be a supply shock brought on, uh, at least in part, in major part, by the surge in U.S. shale production that in turn was created by technological change that is now sweeping the world. Failure to see this oil price shock coming is one of the great forecasting blunders of this century, although not as great as the global forecasting community's failure to anticipate the 2008 financial crisis. Let me ask you to take another look at that chart, the graphic in the contest. The question is whether the drop in price that we've seen is a temporary blip. Now, uh, the, the, if you read Jack Mintz's column in the Post this morning, he said that the, the triple-digit oil prices of the last few years were not normal. But what is normal? Well, if you look at the graphic, between 1985 and 2005, the average price was $30 a barrel. <clears throat> For the first 70 years of the last century, the average price was less than $20 a barrel. Now, I'm not saying the $30 is normal, but the graphic suggests that the two $100 oil price peaks that we saw over the last few uh, couple of decades were temporary developments driven by certain aberrations in supply and demand for oil. Over the long term, innovation and market competition will deliver new supplies to a world that needs as much cheap energy as it can get. Peak oil theorists don't stand a chance. Now, now that we seem to have cheap oil, at least for the time being, the aftershocks across the world economy uh, will in many cases be monumental and bring about monumental change. Global political disturbances from Russia to South America to the Middle East are obviously taking place. The United States and other major oil consuming countries will experience increased growth. Canada will be a net beneficiary. Stock prices should continue to rise. The new normal oil price will have a profound impact on economic decisions, government policy making. On Keystone, for example, Obama now has even less reason to approve the pipeline. Not that he was looking for one, but he can now argue even more effectively that America does not need Canadian oil. But more than Keystone is at risk, oil at $50 a barrel puts the Canadian dream of becoming an energy exporting <coughs> superpower in even greater doubt. Other pipelines to the West Coast, Energy East, look even more improbable. Maybe prices and technology will combine to turn Canada into an energy superpower, but that prospect now seems decades away. In summary, the price crash in oil looks like a shock that will ripple through the world economy for years to come. It will rock government budgets, increase growth, realign global power struggles, change the course of major industries, throw a monkey wrench into international climate negotiations, and disrupt the activities of central bankers. But I have no idea who will win the next federal election. Thanks very much.
Up next, Warren Jeston, who has his notes in his hand. I can see them. Obviously, the first thing I should say is that economic forecasts can be hazardous to your wealth. So uh, you take all economic forecasts with a big grain of salt. Uh, picking up on Terence's uh, comments, but moving it uh, a little broader, first of all, his point is well taken. I don't think anybody a year ago would have thought that WTI oil would have been below $50 a barrel where it is today. And there were few that saw that the Canadian dollar would be 85 cents or less, which it is today nor would people have thought that the crisis in the Ukraine and Russia or in the Middle East would have developed in the way that it has over the last year. At the same time, many analysts were forecasting that certain things were happened that did not. The gradual recovery in Europe, we had the economics of hope very high there because they had been in the longest recession since the inception of the Eurozone. Not so much anymore. That, uh, that forecast has become much more uh, cautious borderline recession and perhaps uh, disinflation is the real issue there. And emerging market outperformance, which had been with us for some time, was going to continue to support commodity prices in general, and that, of course, has changed over the last half year or more. What we got and what we thought we were going to get, of course, was entirely different. But my job is to do fearless forecasts of the economy. So I will now give you my stab into the dark as to where we are going and the most important things that we should be paying attention to. The first one, and this is a game changer in financial markets, is the U.S. is back in the game. The U.S. economy is now seen in a leadership role in a way it was not seen two years ago. Deficits have come down substantially, variety of fiscal uh, reforms, uh, some of which were not uh, voted on by Republicans and Democrats but came in automatically, uh, faster growth, 3% growth with pent-up demand likely to keep it there for the next couple of years, makes global investors much more infatuated with the U.S., particularly in a world environment where the, U uh, the European economy is not growing and where uncertainty seems to be everywhere. I believe Europe will remain on the cusp of recession for some time. And in the emerging world, the BRIC economies, well, Brazil scrapes through perhaps with 1.5% growth over the next couple of years. Uh, Russia, of course, in recession this year. India picking up a little bit and China slowing down a little bit. Chinese growth, 7% is disappointing. Uh, it's still going to emerge very quickly as the largest economy in the world. But that confluence of events in the emerging world means that the support for commodity prices across a broad range of items, not only oil but other things, are, is gone, at least temporarily. And it does create growth in some countries, but there are winners and losers, oil producers being the losers, consumers being the winners, and for both it creates uncertainty. When you have market volatility like this, it is not good for consumer and investor confidence. You tend to save rather than spend. So this big pickup because of low oil prices may be out there somewhere, but I do not think it is in the near term. On balance, where do these factors take us? Well, first of all, stronger U.S. dollar, because the U.S. has become the center of attention amongst global investors. Low inflation is back. 
And in fact, lower inflation or disinflation in some areas is the worry, certainly in Europe and in Japan. Central banks in this environment keep short-term interest rates low. The Fed may lead in raising interest rates because after all, it is a stronger economy, but will do so cautiously. And low bond yields, well, they're back as well, particularly in the U.S., where the 10-year bond has broken below 2% recently. The implications for Canada? Well, Canadian growth is going to lag the U.S. Our housing market is buoyant, but is not in a leadership role for growth. We are having a change in the economic landscape. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Labrador, big commodity producing provinces are now going into a period of softer growth and worrisome performance. Ontario, Quebec, and some of the other economies that are more oriented towards the U.S. are expected to take up some of the slack, but not all of the slack, because you have to remember, with slower growth, Weaker commodity prices, by and large, fiscal revenues are also being reduced. And problems that we have in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, uh, and other resource-producing provinces in terms of resources coming into the government mean that they will be trying to redress problems in their fiscal balances at a time when Ontario and Quebec are dealing with legacy issues. Exports win because the U.S. accounts for 60, sorry, 74% of our exports. But you've got to remember, the biggest export that we have in this country, there's nothing that's even close, is energy. In the year 2000, autos and energy were neck and neck in terms of generating export revenues. That is not the case any longer. And while we will find that the auto industry is picking up because Americans are buying more cars, average age of a car in the U.S. is low over 11 years, a lot of pent-up demand, we are winning cyclically but not structurally because a lot of the investment is going into the U.S. South and into Mexico. So near term, the pickup will level growth uh, across the country as resource producing regions tend to slow down. But longer term, the challenges of moving up the value added curve and enhancing value in our exports remains. Canadian dollar, well, it's below 85 cents. Our view is the risks are in the downside rather than the upside in a very broad range because we would expect oil to also be volatile. Do I think, as Terence suggested, that oil may be staying where it is or perhaps even going lower? Well, our fearless forecast is in the second half of the year, a lot of shutdown in production capacity globally will bring the price back above the $60 barrel range for WTI and perhaps a little bit higher for, for, uh, for Brent, but way, way below where we thought it was going to be a year or two years ago. All of these things are cyclical. They are in the here and now, but let's not lose sight of the long game. The long game is over the next three to five years, even with a slowdown in the emerging world, those are the markets of the future, and in order to take advantage of them, a low Canadian dollar alone is not enough. We have to move up the value-added curve. Without that, we will tend to be lagging in exports and lagging the U.S., in my view, over the next three to five years. Thank you very much. This is the time for you to pull out that question card. If you have a question, jot it down in your most legible handwriting, and then hold it up, and one of our staffers will be wandering around the room for you to include it in our conversation. Uh, up next, Conrad Black. Thank you very much. I, um 
except philosophically that I appear to have become a mockery and a figure of fun here before I've even said anything. <laughs> and it must be because you've become habituated to my uh, not overly upbeat predictions uh, at, this, at this annual event, which I blame on the weather. Um, I see that I've been caricatured as a compulsively talkative reactionary, but I would invite anyone who has had a more populist decade than I have to stand up. Thank you very much. I agree with, uh, with the conventional wisdom that the betting, I guess, is that we'll have around 2.5% growth in Canada this year, on, uh, trailing the United States, as Warren said, by about a point. But uh, I have to say that I'm not so impressed as he is with the American performance. Yes, they are having something of recovery, but it is, in my judgment, and I put it to you, the absolute minimum you would expect of a country, the greatest economy in the world, that had $10 trillion of accumulated debt after 233 years of independence six years ago and have raised it from $10 trillion to $18 trillion in six years. If they didn't have 3% growth, there would be something absolutely inexplicable going on. What is inexplicable is that they haven't got more for their money than that. Um, and I don't think that the Canadian performance is itself particularly impressive, uh, not only opposite the U.S. In November, I believe, the Americans had 320,000 new jobs and we had a negative 10,000. Now, it's only one month, but it's still, I, I, it's worrisome. And I was surprised that it wasn't more commented on than it was. But I don't think there's any real excuse for Canada to have a higher unemployment rate and a lower economic growth rate than the United Kingdom. This is a richer country and it has on balance a more skilled workforce. And I think that there is room for some policy improvements, but in the straitjacket that our jocular chairman has put us all in, there isn't time to get into it. I just make these comments that... Um, uh, Economics to me, which at the best of times is a fairly dodgy business, doesn't really make sense. Uh, what, what really astonishes me is the combination of this enthusiasm for the US dollar, given the binge of deficit spending that country's engaged in, and the alarm over the oil price, a, a panic in the financial markets because the oil price goes down. This is a $750 billion tax cut for Western Europe, the Americas, Japan and Australia. The governments will get most of the tax revenue that they're losing from that price back from the implications of putting that much more money into the pockets of the people who have to put gasoline in their cars and buy heating fuel for their homes. And it's a tremendous step forward. And up until relatively recently, if anyone had held out this prospect to us, there would be 
weeks of, of uncontrollable celebrations. And I, I'm just astounded at the timidity with which this has been received, or the alarm. And um, similarly, the addiction to inflation, uh, it cold terror that the great rich country of France now has no inflation. Well, I think it was a, an invention in my reading, and I defer to those more economically lettered than myself, but of uh, Paul Samuelson, that moderate inflation was a good idea. But it shows how addicted we've become to inflation because it creates the illusion of increasing value while steadily devaluing the actual cost of debt. And, and we now have currencies that have no value whatsoever other than in relationship to each other. And the implications of this in the hands of our politicians are clear. We are just on a, on a steady descent in the value of all these currencies. And I think that, uh, that we are going to pay for it eventually. Now, I don't want to be the voice of gloom. Fundamentally, the world works astonishingly well because, uh, you know, considering that it's humans who inhabit it. And, and um, you know, the, the world's workforce is much more skilled than it has ever been. Huge countries that formerly had no interest in economic growth, led by China and India and Indonesia, are now putting up respectable growth rates. And all of this is positive. So I, I'm, not, I'm not negative overall. But just remember this, if you would. If you read the works of Dr. Johnson and of Charles Dickens, who lived approximately 100 years apart, Prices did not change in Britain. They didn't change for a loaf of bread or the cost of renting a room or a pint of ale. There was no inflation. There were booms and busts, but there was no inflation. Now, I'm not suggesting a return to that era at all, but the fact is, in the First World War and after the First World War, the advanced economic countries made a choice. They opted for inflation to ameliorate and alleviate recessions. I'm not saying that was a bad choice. I'm the biographer of Franklin D. Roosevelt. I think, I think it was a good choice. But, but now we are facing a problem where there is no yardstick and there is no apparent public sector ability to resist the temptation to allow the erosion of the currencies. And, and, I, and I think we are fundamentally, all of us, uh, in, a, in, in a getting into a steadily more awkward position, but it will be remediable. But there will only be a will to remedy it when we have a, a severe shock, and we'll, we'll get a severe shock eventually. Um, I think in the end, and I'll leave you with this thought, I think we need some more original thinking. I, mean, I recently binged on reading up again after a lapse of decades on Keynes and Hayek, most of what they both wrote was rubbish. They were brilliant men and, and quite good writers too. But Keynes said there was a natural balance in the economy and there isn't. And Hayek said that any public sector spending was bad. He was absolutely right as a public philosopher that government intervention can be dangerous to liberty. But it is not the case that public sector spending is bad. And indeed, without it, we wouldn't have a country for going from Jean Talon to uh, Francis Hinks and John A. MacDonald with Canadian Pacific and uh, Clifford Sifton and C.D. Howe. We wouldn't have a country without them. And you need it sometimes. And, and I realize I'm 
flying in the face of the prevalent image that I'm some figure from the medieval right, but, but I'm not. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and, and I, I think that we, we in Canada could take the lead in putting some backing behind our currency. And I, I'm not for the gold standard, but some blend of gold, oil, and consumer basket of some kind, something, some kind of measurement. And, and I think that we should also take to heart Alan Greenspan's comments in his latest book, and he writes as someone who is certainly heavily complicit in the problems of the, uh, the uh, subprime mortgages and so forth, the housing bubble, and, and prolonged artificially low interest rates. But we can't get on top of these things until we have entitlements under control. And I think we are going to have to devise some method of ensuring a sustainable balance between recipients of state benefit and contributors to it. And that will mean adjusting the retirement age. It will mean a lot of factors that would have to be entered into very carefully and after a lot of analysis, but we're going to have to get there. And. Um, and I also think that we're going to have to learn the lesson of raising revenues by taxing elective spending. I'm not talking about groceries or children's clothes or home heating oil or something. Elective spending and reducing income taxes, personal and corporate. I suspect my time has elapsed. I always leave them laughing. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Bach, we'll have you join us. Thank you very much, Conrad Black. Our next speaker, Andrew Coyne. Yeah, sure, sure. Put me on after Conrad Black. Uh, if there is anything more tedious than predictions of what is to come in the year ahead, and is not the theme of each of these annual installments that nobody actually knows, uh, and yet here we are again. But if there's anything more to you, that is speculation on when the federal election will be. I've read at last count something like 700 columns on this uh, not very appetizing theme. Uh, they'll go in the spring, they'll wait till the fall, spring, fall, fall, spring. Uh, so let me subject you to my own uh, tedious prediction there will be an election this year. <laughs> uh, as such, absolutely everything that happens will be analyzed through a lens of electoral politics, which is only fitting since absolutely everything that happens will be for reasons of electoral politics, at least coming out of Ottawa. We appear to have already had the much anticipated cabinet shuffle. If you blinked, you might have missed it. Uh, such was Harper's haste to dispose of the Fantino mess with as little fuss as possible. And by the way, I, I predicted that. Uh, the rest of the year will essentially be a kind of a race. Uh, simply put, can the economy improve enough to rescue the government from its growing uh, democratic and ethical deficit? The case for going to the polls early is to get ahead of the impact of an ever-lengthening list of corruption trials and scandals among them the Mike Duffy trial with the tantalizing prospect of an appearance by the Prime Minister, 
the trial of Senator Pat or former Senator Patrick Brazo, the trial of the former Prime Minister advisor Bruce Carson, the appeal of Michael Sona, the young worker, a campaign worker in Guelph, of his sentence, the Del, Dean Del Mastro sentencing coming up. Surely Arthur Porter, the man the PM inexplicably named as chair of CSIS, will make an appearance at some point. Of course, the other parties have their own ethical challenges. Witness the fall of Senator Mac Harb or the two liberal MPs accused of sexual harassment. The Auditor General will deliver his report this spring on his investigation into senators' expenses, all of the senators, and let's just say it will be a pretty business, to say the least, if he should find that the senators were generally guilty of that for which Senators Duffy, Wallen, and Brazo were individually judged, all of which may provide cover for the government to appoint another 16 senators from the ranks of failed Tory candidates and sitting MPs they'd prefer did not have the chance to become failed candidates. So the spring and summer will be a prolonged bath in sleaze and entitlement. Uh, but the government might choose to stick it out nevertheless in hopes that by fall the economic picture will have so improved as to lift their electoral prospects. There's some basis for this. Unemployment, perhaps the key indicator in terms of voter sentiment, is already in the mid-6%, and by the fall it could be, well be down to near 6%, about where it was at the height of the pre-crisis expansion. In particular, the combined effect of stronger growth in the U.S., cheaper oil, and a falling dollar should make spirits brighter in Ontario where this election will be won or lost. If so, there shouldn't be the slightest doubt that this will redound to the incumbent's favor. There's an idea out there that you sometimes hear that in good economic times, people feel they have the liberty to kind of shop around for other parties. I can find no evidence that this is true. In good economic times, people's overwhelming instinct is to stick with the government they've had. We've seen that in one provincial election after another in the last couple of years, Alberta, BC, Manitoba, Ontario. Federally, you have to go back to 1957 to find the last time a majority government was driven from office when unemployment was below 7%. And in, in that case, unemployment was rising to the then unheard of heights of 6% plus. The problem for the government is that it can't be sure that the economy will cooperate, as we've been hearing some of today. It can claim to have the, balance, the budget balanced this spring, uh, the basis for the already half-delivered bonanza of goodies, income splitting, higher limits on tax-free savings accounts, and so on. By the way, I think these are good policies, but they have the added appeal, as far as the government's concerned, of being electorally appealing, uh, that it is intent on showering on taxpayers. But by the fall, events may conspire to throw both the economy and the fiscal plan off the track that is most congenial uh, to the government. We've already seen the havoc that falling oil prices can play with revenue projections, most notably for the government of Alberta, but also to a lesser extent the Feds. But now add in the impact of a possible full-blown euro crisis. Should Greece elect the opposition Syriza party? Should it make good on its threat to leave the euro? And should Germany make good on its threat to let it? There's a lot of brinksmanship going on there, and in brinksmanship games, sometimes people can miscalculate. Now pile these on top of the very exposed position of certain of the provinces, naming no Ontarios or Quebecs, and suppose that interest rates start to rise in response to this heightened nervousness and work out what that means to heavily mortgaged homeowners and so on and so forth. All of which is to say it's not a slam dunk that waiting is the government's best option. Uh, but where there's life, there's hope, 
And waiting is always the politician's preferred alternative. Uh, my favorite Jean Chrétien quote is they asked him once uh, who his favorite hockey player was. And without hesitation, he said Jacques Plante, the famous Montreal Canadiens goalie. And actually, they asked him, why? Why Jacques Plante? He said, because he never made the first move. <laughs> and if you want the Jean Chrétien political modus operandi in a nutshell, <laughs> wait for your opponent to make the first move. Anyway, all this is to say, if I were a betting man and I am not, I would bet on a fall election. Uh, as for the result, how the hell should I know? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew, Diane Francis, rounding our, out our panel. Okay, well, I'm uh, here to make forecasts, stick my neck out. It's not my usual uh, way of uh, talking, but here we go. Um, start with the, I'm gonna start with countries, then I'm gonna go into commodities. The United States, the U.S. dollar will continue to be strong, which, by the way, gives commodity producers some relief because they produce in currencies that have fallen, like in Canada's, against the U.S. dollar, and their commodities earn U.S. dollars. So uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good thing, actually, for commodities producers in Canada, including oil. Um, in the United States, uh, the historical record shows that in the third year of a presidency, the stock market booms. The fourth year, it booms, but not quite as much. And this is because facing, rounding the end of a cycle, it doesn't matter whether it's the first or second term of the president, um, Congress and the president are going to open their wallets to spending. And it's going, the magic word this year is infrastructure spending. That's why I think Keystone will be approved. The new narrative in the U.S. for Keystone is it's a national security issue. The Middle East is a mess. We need it. The region of North America can only become energy independent, oil independent, with Keystone and oil sands, and that is actually true. I think the grand bargain that Obama may, may, may strike in return for holding out for as long as he has on Keystone is he may give a bone to the environmentalists by imposing a gasoline tax and or removing oil subsidies from the companies. This will also please the Republican deficit fighters, a tax and or the removal of subsidies. GDP growth in the United States will continue to be 3.5%. China's is 7 in absolute dollars. Growth in the United States is larger than China's. It'll be Bush versus Clinton. We're entering the primary year, which I find a wonderful, entertaining prospect, as they get voted off the island. But ahead of time, we know it'll be Jeb and Hillary, which is not all bad for everybody around the United States and dependent on it. Canada, we will be carried along by the U.S., although we will lag because of the auto and the oil situation. If Keystone uh, happens, we will have job creation because Alberta is the job-creating province of the, of the country. If not, we will lag. Eastern Canada continues to get further and further mired in debt, the provinces. Ontario will not lead the nation no matter what happens in the oil patch. Its debt is the highest in the, of subnational governments in the world. Canadian manufacturers enjoy a low dollar. 
but our manufacturers, particularly in auto, are surrounded by a sea of right-to-work states, as well as Mexico. We are losing that battle. High taxes and high energy costs contribute to the problem. The good news is agriculture across the country will continue to do very well. Agricultural commodities have done fine. And we also have the First Nations issue, which has yet to be involved and will remain for many years a drag on Canada's development of its hinterland, and there's no game plan. China will be, uh, continue to fight corruption. I think it's for real. They are continuing to uh, work hard at efficiencies, and they are very concerned about the future because as automation bites all around the world, they have a lot of people to keep employed at low wages and they won't be able to compete with the machines. So they are uh, changing course somewhat to, to continue economic growth and to upgrade the skills of their people. European Union, Greece is going to threaten to leave if they don't get their way and Germany will say, fine, here's the door. The EU has become the United States of Germany, which I have nicknamed it. They are in charge. They are the best economy on the planet. They have the lowest youth unemployment. They have great exports, specialized manufacturing, and they are going to be the first country in the world to have free energy through distributed power and renewable energy that they have subsidized heavily, and they are going to do it before anybody else. And then that, of course, gives the comeuppance to Russia, as its energy grip over Europe will lessen. Russia, I think uh, Putin will continue to uh, tighten the grip internally. He will nationalize just about every any company that needs it. He will even possibly fool around with the central bank. He already has. But I think he will slowly slip out of eastern Ukraine without admitting it. He clearly overplayed his hand, and even he must realize that. The Middle East is a mess. It's a religious war between Sunni and Shia. And as for oil, which is very important to Canada, let's, there's two things we have to understand about oil prices. The market is not a market. It is rigged. It's rigged because OPEC may only have 35 to 40 percent of world oil production, but the five Gulf states plus Saudi Arabia have 25% of the world oil production alone. They are rich, they don't have to produce, they can manipulate the market, and they control about 80% of exports. Everybody else who produces oil, whether it's the US or other countries, consumes the oil, so it has to produce no matter the price. This oil price collapse is aimed at getting Iran and keeping it at the nuclear Talk, disarmament talks table. So my, my prediction is that the price of oil will zoom up. It may go up a little bit here or there, but it will zoom up to the 80-plus level when Iran signs a non-prolif uh, agreement and an agreement for uh, independent auditing and peaceful uses of nuclear. Why is Saudi Arabia doing this? Because if Iran doesn't do that, the neighborhood remains very dangerous and violent and the Arabs, the Gulf states, will have to develop nuclear capacity, which could cost them half a trillion dollars or more. It's much cheaper to drop your prices and pull back than to have to develop a nuclear capability. I believe gold will just stay flat at around 1,100, as much as I dislike that, being a director of a gold mine company. 
but on the other hand, the higher U.S. dollar keeps our costs low, production. Industrial metals, demand will be soft because of China's, China's softening uh, growth uh, and because Russia is desperate and will oversupply everything. Real estate, been mentioned, I think we have a bubble. I think it's pretty awful that average housing prices in Vancouver and Toronto are respectively 30 and 15% higher than New York City's. That's a bubble. U.S. prices will start to track upward. They already have because of massive Chinese and other foreign buying flight capital from countries and currencies that are not doing so well. And the Chinese are ready to overtake Canadians as the number one foreign buyers of U.S. property. There were relaxed visa rules in, given to China embedded in the environmental trade pact that was made between China and the U.S. that very few people know about. It's going to be much easier for Chinese to get visas, student visas, and to buy property. And finally, the good news for Canada is that whatever, Canada in general, is that whatever the news, good or bad economically, I believe that Harper and his Tories will win re-election, if only because they're the only credible, mature, experienced CEO and management team on the roster. And in the United States, it's going to be Jeb or Hillary. That's good news. Both are, occupy the center of their respective parties. They are not at either end of the flanks. And both have White House experience already indirectly. On that note, thank you. All right. A full buffet, a full buffet of extraordinary insight that has led to a stack of questions to our speakers. Think of this as a game show, and think of this as the speed round. We have minutes left, so I'm going to direct questions to you, but if you could think of your answer in as succinct a way as possible, that would be great. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to begin with you. The Canada-Europe Free Trade Agreement will affect every riding in Canada. Why hasn't it been discussed more, or will it be during the election? Uh, why hasn't it been discussed more is because, the, generally speaking, the government doesn't like many things to be discussed, so they prefer to do things behind uh, closed doors. It's a, I think they've, there's some real politics that I can't say that it's, from their perspective, wrong, but it's not so good from a democratic standpoint. I don't think it's going to be a huge election issue, though, because we haven't seen anybody really come out against it. So uh, I think you know, both the Liberals and the NDP have essentially signed on to the broad consensus that we are a free trading country. Uh, aside from particulars that might emerge, I can't see it becoming a, a central issue in the election, no. Warren, we've heard reports stating our real estate market is inflated by as much as 30%. One of our speakers uh, spoke to that point. Uh, this is a question, is it true? And here's the self-interest in a PS. I'm looking to sell in Barrie and buy in the GTA. Should I do it? So I think you can answer in a broad way. And to our asker, uh, you can parse the answer. Okay, I mean, the, the market has defied gravity even over the last year or so, particularly in Vancouver and in Toronto, where prices have tended to go up. I think there is a bit of an imbalance, particularly in the small size condo market in both areas. As long as we have uh, foreign investor interest, as long as the government does not tighten eligibility, which effectively impacts first-time home buyers, I don't think we're going to see a precipitous price decline. The decline in oil prices by itself 
to the extent that it slows overall growth in Canada in some regions may have an impact on their housing market, but certainly the, uh, the Calgary and Edmonton market were not way ahead of, of things. In fact, they were slow to recover after the financial crisis. So punchline, I don't, uh, I don't share Diane's view that we have a, a huge bubble in this country. I think that uh, the uh, overall weight of mortgage debt relative to assets and income are such that we won't have a major, um, a major decline, although certain individuals that have taken on a lot of uh, debt in the 25 to 35-year-old age group uh, are at risk because they have stretched as far as they can, and that segment is very, very small as a percentage of the total mortgage market. This next one is what I would call a comment-question hybrid. It is for Conrad. Uh, what can the free world do to ameliorate the damage that two more years of Obama will bring? So you can hear the comment in there, right? But there is a question. What do you think? Grin and bear it. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, okay. no, I, no I'll, I'll, I'll. Uh, The next question. Uh, to be serious, without without violating your call for succinctness, I, I I want to agree with the book just published by Brett Stevens, who was here in Toronto a few weeks ago, um, editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal, who was our editor at the Jerusalem Post at one time. Uh, the United States is not in decline; it's it's in retreat, and it's not in retreat because it's been defeated. It's in retreat because it is really not threatened in the world very much by other countries. Uh, the terrorists are, of course, a nuisance to all countries, including the United States. But the United States is not under threat the way it was opposite international communism, the Soviet Union, and before that, Nazi Germany, and even Imperial Germany. And uh, it is retrenching, not in a well-planned or well-explained or orderly way, but not as a result of being defeated and demoralized. It is and in this I must agree with Diane, it is incomparably the greatest country in the world. But um, in these circumstances, uh, in effect, regions sort it out for themselves. And the recent visit of uh, the Prime Minister of India to Japan was an important step in putting together a, an informal coalition of countries adjoining or near to China as a counterweight, not a containment, not a hostile thing, but a counterweight. Uh, Russia is not a threat in Western Europe, and as has been mentioned, the Saudis, though it's the last thing they cared about, actually evicted Putin from Ukraine after the complete ineffectuality of our great Western leaders. And, uh, and even in the Middle East, as, again, Diane pointed out, the Saudi Arabia has put a rod on the back of Iran. And, uh, and if that isn't sufficient to prevent it seeking to be a nuclear threshold state, again, in the, in the aftermath of, in my opinion, so far at least, the failure of our six leading country negotiators to get them to be reasonable, then I don't think there's much doubt that Israel will take military action, and it is sufficient to do it. You can revisit Iranian airspace every month if you need to. You can't put together a nuclear weapon, even in a basement, with bunker busters unloading on top of you. And at least this improbable alliance of Saudi Arabia and Israel will be able, I think, to spare us 
a nuclear Iran after, I am afraid, the failure of the so-called great powers. So and I think we can get by this time. And Obama, while I don't think he's a very successful president, isn't catastrophically awful. The United States is still strong. They'll have another election in two years, and life goes on. So sit back and enjoy it. Thank you very much, Conrad Babb. That is the time that we have, so thank you for sitting back and enjoying it. It was a great, uh, a great afternoon of comment from our speakers, and I wish we had all afternoon. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Bruce. At the annual Outlook never fails to deliver insights and advice to kickstart the new year. Thanks to our panel for once again delivering in such an impactful way, and our captivating moderator, Bruce, skillfully navigated a riveting discussion. Thank you. Canada continues to be a beacon of economic stability and growth. I hope everyone was taking notes and will join us again in January 2016 to see, how, to see just how accurate today's forecasts were. And you can replay every word by going to the Canadian Club website and downloading today's webcast and podcast. I'd like to once again thank our partner, the National Post, for 38 great years, and we look forward to many more to come. As well, we'd very much appreciate our sponsors, EY and Scotiabank, for making this event possible. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the survey on each of your tables. We are always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please take a minute to help us by sharing your thoughts and comments. We very much appreciate the feedback. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for today's live webcasting. We're also grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian club events. To learn more about the club, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thanks all of you for joining us. Our meeting is now adjourned.